We are and always will be a nation of immigrants. This is my country, my damn country. Give me my country, you can keep the rest. Old men and women yearning for freedom and opportunity who leave their homelands and come to a new country to start their lives over. We were strangers once too. My country, my damn country. Give me my country. Hello, hello, hello. Aliens and allies, your friendly Russian is here. This is We the Aliens podcast. I'm your host, Sasha Kapustina. Thank you for tuning in. Happy Hispanic Heritage Month, aka Latinx Heritage Month, to all the Latinx folks out there. Happy Rosh Hashanah to all the Jews. Happy New Year and happy Monday to everyone else. I know it's not much, but you know what? All things considered, that's not too shabby either. This week on the podcast, I talk with Hector Herrera, an actor and dialect coach. Hector's voice alone is a good enough reason to listen to this interview, but he also shares some crazy stories, including going to El Salvador in the middle of a civil war and accidentally attending a Christmas evening with some KKK people in Louisiana. So stick around. But before we get to the interview, quick, well, actually not so quick, but um, some important housekeeping. First of all, you may have noticed, but in case you didn't, I have posted a new episode of Ask Your Friendly Russian. It also exists as a video with pictures and stuff on our YouTube channel. Find the link in the show notes. In this episode, I talk about the probable use of weapons of mass destruction in Russia, which if you follow the news, you will hear about in the next few weeks. So you can get a little head start uh, as I'm basing my story on reports from Russia directly. So check it out and share it. And I'm specifically asking you to share it because of the second item on the housekeeping list. And uh, I've had an experience with Facebook recently. And honestly, I'm actively looking for a way to leave the platform. But the lame thing is that there is no real alternatives. All of these platforms are more or less the same. And we're all stuck with them, which is a topic for a whole different conversation but here is my Facebook PSA and I'm sure you will know some of these things but I'm also sure that some of these things will be new so if you're on Facebook check this out I'm sharing this with you because first of all I need to vent and uh, I'm just frustrated and second I honestly hope that maybe someone among my listeners knows how to fix this so, hey, savvy social media pros, please help. So Facebook has been under a lot of pressure after the 2016 election to take control of the politically charged content. So looks like they're on it, uh, which is a great thing. And as a concerned non-citizen permanent resident, I fully support the efforts, but uh, there seem to be some unpleasant side effects and built-in bugs. Here are some basic things about Facebook that you probably know. 
First of all, the algorithm runs the platform. The algorithm decides who sees what and when. And please do not be under an illusion that you decide that for yourself. The platform decides for you based on your previous behaviors with the sole purpose of monetizing your attention. And it's not some kind of conspiracy theory. It's just the business model of Facebook. They sell ads. And in order to sell ads, they need you to stay on the platform. It's that simple. Uh, it used to be the TV. Uh, now it's Facebook. They just need you to keep scrolling and clicking. Algorithm wants you to stay on as long as possible. So in order to do that, it only shows you the stuff that you like. More precisely, stuff that you have liked before. It also only shows you posts of those who you interact with on a regular basis because you are statistically more likely to interact and keep looking at them. So in most basic terms, if you liked your friend's cat a couple of times, the algorithm will keep showing you your friend's cats and not a photo of your other friend's new car. We've all had this experience of posting something and getting zero traction and wondering if all of our friends are suddenly ignoring us. When in fact, nobody just saw your post because the platform didn't deem it worthy of their attention. The only way to get outside the box that algorithm has put you in is to become an actual client of Facebook, meaning to pay to boost your post, become an advertiser, which I'm perfectly willing to do. At the end of the day, I spend days uh, laboring over these episodes and I want people to hear them. So I tried boosting my posts on Facebook, but the platform shuts them off. They literally don't get approved because according to their policies, I'm not authorized to run ads on social issues, which immigration is obviously a social issue. At first, I was actually excited. I was like, oh, good job, Facebook, taking some control over the situation. Nice. Okay. How do I sign up? How do I get authorized? So for weeks now, I've been jumping through the hoops that Facebook has placed in front of me, which included disclosing some additional personal information, which I had no intention of sharing with the platform that I don't quite trust, but I did it anyway. Then verifying my address by typing in a code that they mailed to my home address. I even had to go to a notary public and verify my identity and upload a form on the site. I did everything they asked and all of that in vain. They still don't let me boost my posts about immigration and I'm not sure why. And this is why I'm so frustrated and ranting. I'm stuck with trying to get to every new listener manually. So please share uh, share the podcast, tell your friend, share a link from the app, uh, through the messenger, through WhatsApp, just tell other people or share it on social media. It, it really means the world to me. Um, okay. Um, I'm done with 
housekeeping slash whining. Thank you for listening. You're a real friend. Now, to the actual podcast. In celebration of Latinx Heritage Month, I'm bringing you a lineup of coolest Latinx folks over the next few weeks. Today, it's Hector Herrera, an actor and dialect coach. Hector was born and raised in Mexico, Mexico City, and has been living and working in Los Angeles for over 30 years now. Most recently, he worked as a dialect coach with the actors on the show Mayans and the new show Coyote that is currently on hold uh, because of COVID, but hopefully will come back soon. Besides his work as an actor, he cares deeply about justice and human rights and Latinx folks, and he has worked with Amnesty International on their awareness campaigns, and he continues working with uh, private attorneys assisting with translations for their Spanish-speaking clients. Hector is a very deep and caring man, and I think you will enjoy his company. So here's my chat with Hector Herrera. So the thing with being so close to the United States is you have these blessings, but at the same time, you have this other brother that is there to help you, but sometimes he's kind of weird, you know, because, uh, 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 for example, the Kennedy years, you know, he would understand, he did, and they understood, well, we need these people, we need these laborers who live here in this country who used to be theirs, by the way, uh, let's just give them a pass so they can go back and forth through the border. Um, so there was some symbiotic, some sort of um, partnership, a brotherhood of some sort with our uh, blonde-haired cousins at the, in the North. And the North with, you know, their, their brown-skinned, um, what, neighbors, I guess. Cousins, too, cousins. I guess. Ha- have to be cousins, too. Have to be. <laughs> have to be. That's what I would think so. And this is what I felt growing up in Mexico City, going to this American school with blonde kids that did not speak Spanish, and I did not speak their, their language either. And I was wondering, okay, what's going on? Why are these guys being mean to me? Why are these guys bullying me? But I stayed in that school for 12 years. And you were bullied throughout? No, hmm. of course not. <laughs> I would not, no. As I grew up and I understood more things and I became very athletic, soccer, baseball, martial arts, etc. yeah. One day I did find the guy or guys who used to bully me and we had a, a reckoning, yeah. Hmm. You kicked their ass Physical. or? Yes, I did. <laughs> By then I was already, I must have been 17, almost 18 years old. By then I had already had at least four years of uh, a Chinese uh, martial arts under my belt. Um, I had played baseball since I was a kid, soccer all the time. Um, I was running all the time. I was training before going to school. And then just one day, it just triggered, you know, some guy just pushed me again and I just dealt back. And like that, I gained this respect that it was unfortunate that it had to be through fists and kicks. Um, but as a teenager, that was the only thing I had. And that was the only thing that, um, I don't know, was, I guess, our language to understand each other as kids still. But um, anyway, it just goes for me living these two worlds. First in Mexico, Mexico City, 
knowing very well what that society and that culture is about, and also learning and being curious about what is the United States and wanting to learn about them and going, wanting to go there and, and be there. So what was the idea of America as you were growing up? What was that? It was a country that democracy came from because I did not see very much of it in Mexico. It was there, but I, I, I would see it difficult to attain because they were the very rich and then the very poor. Middle class back then was still kind of solid, and, and, and we were middle class, middle, lower class. Um, but in the United States, I could see that there was democracy and that there were labor unions that actually worked. And I learned about Screen Actors Guild. And, um, Why did you Astra. learn about Screen Actors Guild? Because by the end of the 70s, early 80s, I wanted to get out of Mexico and I wanted to be an actor. Mm. And I had failed at wanting to be a veterinarian because I was in love with um, cattle and farm animals and, of course, with dogs. Huh. Um, but I, I couldn't put the math together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had the same problem. That I had to go to law school because mm. I couldn't do math. There you go. So concepts, you're good with concepts, you're good with language yeah. <laughs> and ideas. I still hope to, to study some math at some point. I think it's a it's beautiful, sometimes. the most amazing thing out there. Yeah, it is a language, indeed. Um, so, yeah, so I saw this country as an opportunity. Um, I found out about acting, and I started act taking acting classes in Mexico with wonderful teachers. And, um, and one of them told me, don't you speak English? I said, yes, well, go to Los Angeles, get out of here. Come on, go, go, fly. Oh, wow. I was just going to ask, how, what was the, how did the idea of coming to the United States came to you? So it didn't come to you. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, I had a, a couple of years of college. And uh, in Mexico, and it was a very left and progressive leaning school. It was a public school. Um, and I learned by, I was really interested in sociology and politics, etc. And, um, and theater and the arts became for me a way to express myself. Uh, I wanted to say things and that was easy for me to do. And what were the things at that age that you wanted to say? I wanted to talk about political things, actually, political and human rights things. What was the most, uh, what was the thing that bothered you most? What was the strongest thing? I would see this, um, how can I say, hypocr hypocritical view of the United States as them being racist because they hate African-American people. Mm -hmm. But then I would see Mexico with equal hate towards indigenous people. Mm. Do you have the, indigenous blood? I do. 50% of me, according to 23andMe, uh -huh. <laughs> they say that my genes are um, called for 50% Mesoamerican indigenous person. And did you realize that? Did you know that about yourself uh, Yes, mm -hmm. I did. I just don't know how much history um, comes through the generations in 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 your culture. For example, I, I don't know. I know, to, you know, just to my great grandparents, and not much further back. Um, uh, what about you? Like, 
Yeah, for us, with my family, we are basically Mexicans. What we we considered in layman's terms, just 100% Mexican. Um, what does that mean? And that means culturally grown, growing up, being born and growing up in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, but genetically, we are a mix of indigenous and European people. Right. And furthermore, these guys that can, you know, figure out your genome, they tell me that the other 50% is Spain and mm. Arab. Mm. And that makes sense. Two, and 2% African and a little bit from the English islands, something like that. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Um, and so do you think that your um, the fact that you cared for the, indi- the plight of the indigenous people had to do with the you knowing that half of you is with them? Um, or at least half of you? Now I do, but back then I would just see it because mm. we had servants at home. Oh, so that's how it was. Exactly. So I'm a very different type of immigrant to this country. Okay, let's let's go back to your home. What was it like? What what was your home like? Um, for a lot of my childhood, we moved around a lot. Um, and from time to time, my parents would hire a maid, and they were always indigenous people. Um, they would either cook or help my mom with cleaning. And some of them did not speak Spanish. And at other homes that they were really rich, they would have drivers, they would have cooks, many maids, uh, butlers, etc., that were also indigenous people. And others were more um, mestizo, like me, not as uh, indigenous, uh, full-blooded people. And so you were saying how you were feeling this hypocrisy between uh, the United States uh, being called a racist society, racist country, and Mexico kind of having some underlying um, movements also. What what was that about? Um, I could clearly see that we were not equal or we were taught. All these things we learned, you know. When we were a child, when we were children, we would play with our nannies and we would have a wonderful time with them. Yeah. But then in time, you learn that they're different, that we're different, that we're mm. somehow, although at home, they were very kind to them. In the streets, it was a different story. I would see how they were treated because they were begging. They had a lot of kids. And when I would travel as well as a tourist, how the society treated them. And putting aside, not putting aside, but just opening up another parenthesis, there are Afro-Mexican people as well. And not until recent years that the census opened up a box that you could check off there that you are of African descent. There were African slaves in Mexico as well. That makes sense. I have really dear friends of mine that are totally blue-eyed, blonde, whose families came straight from Europe, straight from Germany, Freitag, Schoener, all of these names. And they're Mexican. Former Nazis. Thank you, yes. Yeah, I mean... Not thank you, but thank you for saying it. What do you mean? Because some people won't even are not even aware of that. Well... And you, and you know what, Sasha? The Mexican beer, guess that technology, where that technology came from. Oh, from never them. occurred to me. And they were brilliant, brilliant, the way they marketed. Because the brands, the labels, the companies, the breweries, 
they gave them names of Aztecs kings and leaders. One is Cerveceria Moctezuma. Moctezuma was this magnificent Aztec demigod, pretty much, leader of, of the Aztecs. And the other one, Moctezuma, the other one is, um, oh man, I forget, it's going to come back to me. But they both have these names that are names of uh, Aztec uh, kings. Wow. That's, that always puzzled me, that whole thing with Nazis uh, fleeing to Central and South America. Um, because their whole point was ethnic cleansing. Yes. And they fled into the world of brown people. And they did that voluntarily. And somehow they found it in themselves to make a life there. Yes. So let's stick around a little bit in your childhood for, for a minute. So you were telling me about your home. So what, what did your mom do? She was um, a mom, homemaker. Um, she had no college education. She was just uh, the typical role of moms in the late 50s, early 60s, yeah. And how many kids there were in the family? Uh, three total. And where, where do you fall sisters. in that? Uh, I'm the oldest. Mm. Yeah. It's a responsible one. Supposedly, yeah. Did you fit? I, I didn't like to, had to mate to be fit because I was the older and the man. Right. Uh, that bothered So you're me. the heir, supposedly. Supposedly, yeah. Did your dad expect you to follow his steps? Um, you know, not necessarily. And I'm grateful for that, that he didn't. He did expect me to do something. Yeah, absolutely. Go to school, finish college, but do whatever you want. He would say, do whatever you want, but That's finish. That's great. Yeah. That's great. Of so what was his position in, in the government? Uh, he worked for the central government in Mexico City, similar to uh, D.C., Washington, D.C., Mexico City. It's its own jurisdiction by itself mm -hmm. but it's also the center of the power for the republic for the whole federation of mm -hmm. states and so there is a office um that is uh, of counsel and um to the what would be white house compared to the white house to it's called los pinos um that is the office of the president so mm -hmm. this was um, kind of like a counselor, um, counseling type of department. So he basically worked for president's administration. Yes, exactly. And he held different positions through different departments and different um, as counsel, both legal and technical. Yeah, he could do many things. He, he was really good with writing. Um, at one time, he amended uh, law for labor labor rights, labor um, benefits, medical, etc. So, yeah, he had a good mind in that, in that sense, yeah. My father and his friend, <clears throat> they grew up in poor neighborhoods, struggling. My dad's father, my grandfather, Erminio, was a musician, and he supported his family playing saxophone and being part of um, government um, programs Exactly, orchestras and cultural events. Um, and they they lived in poor neighborhoods, and they both were the first ones to go to college, etc. And they were always, you know, navigating these two worlds uh, in which they were uh, privy and um, close to government officials. And because they were bright, 
educated people, you know, they were of need and capable. Yet uh, it was difficult, I could see, for them to recon you know, re reconcile these two worlds. And them being honest and wanting to be honest and not needing anything else but their jobs, keep their jobs so they could feed their families, nothing else, knowing what it is to serve people and being so happy with their jobs. Particularly my dad, he traveled throughout the country and sometimes he would take me with him so I would learn about other cultures within Mexico, other oh, people. that's such a great thing to do for kids. It was wonderful. It was amazing. Different foods, the way people would address him with respect and, and how people wanted and needed help and how he would do his best. And then, again, him going back to Mexico and having to deal with the difficulty of actually reminding the leaders. Remember, we promised people... And this, these are just broad examples. Remember, we promised people, you know, they need a water pump, you know, since last year, you know, to water these fields. Or they need this credit, credit, so they can buy seed and fertilizer. And at the same time, my dad telling me, you know, international bank loans are dangerous. He would tell me, you know, because they do lend the money, but then people become slaves to that international bank. Stuff like that. So um, as I grew up and then when I went to college and studied sociology and learned about, uh, frankly, all these other systems of economies, it all made sense. And so let's fast forward to that moment when uh, you did decide to go to the United States. Uh, I mean, I guess there was some space between your teacher suggesting that you do and you actually going. So what went into, into that moment? Um, friends that I grew up with, <clears throat> um, one summer we did an exploration into Silo Sibin. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> very 60s, 70s, yeah. I guess, at that point. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> um, in the outskirts of Mexico City, in these beautiful rolling hills. And we had a full day of magic mushrooms, and it was joyful and happy, and the world looked like, wow. Yeah. We didn't know we lived in this kind of world we could live <laughs> into. Yes. So why right. not, let's just go to the United States and just keep going to school there. Sure, why not? What do you mean? <laughs> and because we had, we, had, we had a friend that had already uh, been here to Huntington Beach or something like that, and he told us that there was this beautiful college with, ro with uh, rolling hills, and the girls were beautiful there. <laughs> Of course. <laughs> and the most important thing. <laughs> the most important thing. And <laughs> uh, but that you could um just, you know, whatever, make make your curriculum and just keep going to school there. And what was the college? Uh it was uh Golden West College. Um it was a community college. So I was there with my friend Philip, who always wanted to be an artist and still is. He's a wonderful sculpture. Um, my friend Antonio and Ricardo Ramirez. Ricardo wanted to be a priest, but he became a sociologist and he examines and um, interprets statistics in Texas. My friend Antonio is a PhD doctor in psychology. Um, and uh, another one, Tony, Tony Sash now, he lives in, um, in Florida and manages land. Uh, he grows oranges. Wow, so all of you had some mushrooms saw the <laughs> bright light of 
over the hill and just went to college and, and made it. That was the first step for me, yes. And once, once I was here, then my dream of becoming an actor and exploring that world started to happen. The early 80s was a, a big, uh, how can I say, um, collapse of the economy in Mexico. Mexico back then had uh, found oil, but it was the really thick, bad oil, not as good and thin as the Arab oil. So there was a collapse. Um, so I just continued here and started fending for myself, working as a busboy. And um, I also discovered that I could be a Spanish interpreter. Right, that um, makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And so and, what uh, were your gigs interpreting? My gigs interpreting became um, working for attorneys and doctors involved in lawsuits for workers' compensation claims, personal injuries, um, working with uh, psychiatrists who do uh, evaluations for psychological injury, psychological trauma at work. Um, and, and like that, um, I was also working at that's, night. That's a very high level of, uh, vocabulary. They have a really high value. Yeah. High, high register of vocabulary that I need to know and became familiarized with. And, um, I've had training as an interpreter and again, because bicultural, not only bilingual, uh, knowing how the people speak from the country and labor force here in the U.S. And I know these people because they come from the same country that I come from. Right. And I know them from Central America because I've, I've been to El Salvador as well. Mm -hmm. um, I knew how to talk to them, and um, that was very helpful, yeah. I'm sure. So with that, um, I was able to kind of support myself as an actor. Uh-huh. So when you first, do you remember the day you were traveling to the United States? I do, actually. <laughs> Tell me about it. Uh, we, we had passports. Mm -hmm. No problem there. Yeah. That's not uh, what I was digging for. <laughs> <laughs> I did not even... I, I, to me, it's just always like that moment of, of knowing that you're going there. Yeah. I think it's a big moment. It is. It is. Uh, we landed in LAX, and we really did not have a place to go to. We knew that school started in a few weeks, and uh, one of them knew someone in Palos Verdes. Okay, so... That's far from LAX. It is, <laughs> but we thought it was close. Um, but this is how adventures and how, I don't know what the hell I was thinking. And we early 80s, thinking. there's no Uber. The taxi is expensive no. as hell. And buses go, I don't know, on their own schedule. Yeah, exactly. Um. <laughs> and there's no internet either. Ex oh, my God. Matt. Yeah, internet. Yes. <laughs> um, so what did you do? Okay, so we... Um, we had an, an, uh, an address, um, and like you say, yeah, taxi was going to be about 80 bucks. Um, but and we just started walking down Century, Century Boulevard with, with our luggage and bags. Oh, my God. Um, and it just got, it was overwhelming. But we were happy. We were, <laughs> we were happy as hell. And, we and so how many were you? Like five, four? Four or, or five of us. And we said, <laughs> well, just let's just... Let's just rest right now. 
just get in one of these little Best Western or Hotel Motel Six or whatever, and just yeah. let's just let's just watch uh, Johnny Carson. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why why Johnny Carson, but in Mexico we had a few channels that you could get whatever. So, <laughs> so that was comforting. That was something that it, you it knew was. about America. Exactly. <laughs> and now, now we're here, but we're we're lost and we don't know what the hell we're gonna do. <laughs> so rest was good. Um, we were able to go through the yellow pages and the white pages. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's no internet. Um, we found this guy who was actually the brother of a girlfriend of one of our buddies here with us, mm-hmm. and we we got a a good sense of where we were. Mm-hmm. Um, and we move our stuff. Someone gave us a ride to Huntington Beach, and there. Um, we was that first day we went to uh, the school we checked out some things that we needed to be sure that we were enrolled etc cetera, etc cetera. and um i was still fortunate enough to have some money left that i could use towards a deposit of an apartment that i would share with these buddies of mine and that's how it started and um and you just got up you found a place and it does help to speak the language um right. it does have to help did to your have friends a passport. speak Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we were all fully bilingual. Oh, um, they were from your school? From my school, yes. Mm. Um, and I still talk to them. We grew up. Um, we met first grade or kindergarten. And uh, wow. we are brothers, brothers, brothers. Yes. That's amazing that you made Now, all, that, all that journey and transition together and you have each other. We do. Now they live in Texas, but for many years we were all here in, in California. Yeah. I'm sure that was a great big support in those early years. Oh, amazing. Yeah, exactly. So when you got here, um, mm-hmm. what was the, what was the, well, besides not having an immediate plan, what was the big dream? What was the plan? The plan was to be an actor and to move to Los Angeles as soon as I could. Um, meanwhile, I met a beautiful girl that later became my first wife. Um, that also helped. Yes. Um, along with other friends, we just became a little community of uh, people that came either from other countries or other states. Um, and the ones that remained from Mexico, then we were able to move to Los Angeles, got another apartment together, and kept on either going to school, working, or both. And um, some people went to USC. They were, I would I would say, wealthy Mexican families that could be them, mom and dad, could pay for their school at USC or at UCLA. But Hector, hey, work, man, work. And if you want to be an actor, find where you can find workshops, and uh, that's what I did. And I found workshops, and... Um, My dear teacher, Jim Wilson, started teaching at his, out of, from his garage with wonderful actors there. I went to community colleges here as well. Uh, I saved a little money. I was able to go to UCLA Extension for acting classes, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and along the way, uh, interpreting and still in contact with my people on a daily basis and with doctors and attorneys and dealing with yeah. the whole thing. So what were what were the harder things in these early years? Okay, with identity to begin with. Um, it was difficult for me to understand why people would not see me as, and I quote, you don't look Mexican enough. <laughs> Classic. 
Um, you don't sound like Mexican. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that kind of thing. Did that uh, impact you as an actor? Was that a problem for you as an actor? It did, because then I had to find myself, you, I need to get a Mexican accent. I mean, I do have an accent, but not the one that Hollywood is looking for, which is yeah. the East Los Angeles population of Mexican first, second, whatever generation born people here. Yeah. Well, I, I know what you mean, because I'm, I'm Russian, and when people look at me, they're like, yeah, yeah. you're not Russian. I, first of all, I don't look Russian, what they think, you know, blonde, tall, model type. I don't yeah. look that. And then I don't have this traditional Russian accent. Uh, unless Your I name is on. Sacha. Why don't you speak like that? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, totally, I totally relate to that. How come you're this? You don't look this. They would tell me, uh, you look Brazilian, uh, mm-hmm. Arab, uh, all of that stuff. Yep. Yeah, I get the same. Though. That's funny. You too, you look just like a girl next door, American, California girl. Yeah, Brazilian Arab. There you go. <laughs> um, which is a which is you know the neighbor you have in Los Angeles. Yeah, so that was kind of difficult on one side. Nineteen ninety two. When were the LA riots? Ninety one or ninety two? Yeah. I was 92. told. I was told go back, go back to your country. Uh, my wife was scared as hell. She told me, "Don't you dare step out of the apartment." Um, I was scared then. It, it felt that I felt for the first time white supremacy USA in my city. Oof. And I felt it and I felt that it was real. Oof. It's so weird to think about LA in that sense because it's a, such a melting pot, truly, truly multicultural Babylon. Yes. Asians, Europeans. Uh, Latinas of all backgrounds, um, yes. everybody's here. Yes, it's beautiful. <laughs> yes, and knowing, and it's really difficult to keep that in mind, like what you were saying, the, the white supremacy that is, I mean, you have to kind of know that it's somehow there. Please, people, wake up to the truth. Um, you know, I had dealt with this vibe, the, these intentions in Mexico at school, I had teachers that were mean to me, and these were American teachers, hmm. and I could feel it, particularly the ones that thought they could get away with it, which were more the physical education teachers, the, uh, you know, the sports teachers, because they the think... teachers bullied a... you. Yes. And guess what? I was, I was a really good baseball player. They never thought that a brown boy would play ball. Well, guess what? Yeah. I went through Little League through Pony, and then the American kids that wanted to play baseball here in school. I mean, I think I'm in Mexico City. Um, yeah, there was a school team that I had to uh, try out for and which I was not admitted into. Um, so I felt that here. And then I realized that, yeah, Buddhism and other religions, forget about Islam, are admitted here. They, they, they say they are, but they're not. I mean, because this is a country for white people. That's what I started feeling. Hmm. Do you feel still the same? No. I think it's a country. Um, no. It's, oh, it's so complicated. Well, it's let's so talk diverse. about it. That's, the, that's what this is for. Yeah. I'm, I'm interested in all complicated things. It's so diverse. And uh, that's the beauty of it. Um, and it's also, I'm sorry, in, uh, it's also 
very valuable for me to hear the perspectives of people. And I don't see you, so, I mean, it's hard to tell from your pictures. Um, I always pass as white. I'm, yeah. People look at me and they're like, oh, Brazilian, but like Brazilian kind of, they, they never think Russian, but I never get stopped in the street. Yeah. I never feel that people look at me funny. You feel that you fit because of the way you look. Yeah. Also, L.A., you know, I look kind of Middle Eastern, Jewy. So, you know, yeah. that's what I, you know, and I'm half Jewish. So that's what I, you know, people see, I'm assuming. Um, so I never have to deal with uh, what people of color have to deal with. That's right. Um, so I really want to hear about that. Um, yes. And I think American society is, I'm sorry, <laughs> following up I think I think American society is crazy in that way that no other country in the world has that much attention to race ethnicity whatever identity it's present everywhere here somehow well not somehow but through series of political structures and social structures it got emphasized and really strengthened absolutely it was licensed and it was emboldened and it was permitted yeah. So I'll share another uh, one of these shocking stories. Please. M my ex-wife, who I have a really good relationship with, and we created these two wonderful children. Uh, she is she was raised and, and born in the South, in Louisiana. Um, last time that I visited there, I had long hair down to my shoulders, and had a ponytail. Um, this was during Christmas time, and one of the family friends invited us while we were there visiting her parents in Louisiana to a gathering of family and friends for Christmas. I'm the only brown person there, I realize, once I get there. Everybody's white or super white. Um, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and because these are um, dear people, friends of my wife's family, I was taught, educated, you say hello to every single person there. Yes. You look at them directly. You shake their hand, at least. So I did that. Mm -hmm. um, the ladies were a little bit aloof and, okay, yeah, whatever. Um, <clears throat> um, and then the men were in a different room. Yeah, it's a I very American in, thing. Oh, totally, <laughs> totally. I had to interrupt the ladies because they were busy doing what the women do, kitchen stuff and setting up the table, blah, blah, blah. And then I went into where the guys were, and my um, uh, other family members were behind me, but I just decided to take charge and be the first one to say hello to everyone. It, it was difficult for them to shake my hand, and I could just feel it. Not only when they give you, you know, the fish, the, the hand that is so flaccid, not a true handshake, man to man, and look at me and shake you properly. They would, not a single one of them would do that. Wow. Um, a few of them did return a firm type of shake of hand, but clearly the touching was a totally no-no. And I could just see them look at me like, who the hell is this guy? Who, how dare he come here and try to say hello to us, dressing like this? They would look at me from, you know, head to toe. And why does he speak English like this? Why is he trying to be, and this is... Okay, I'm a very sensitive person just because I've always been. Mm -hmm. It's been a curse and it's been a an blessing because I'm an actor. And so. you're an actor because of that. 
Correct. And I love it and I need to be careful. And, um, um, but I felt not welcomed. Yeah. And throughout the evening, I felt ostracized. And throughout the evening, I felt that they were experts at practicing social distancing. And in this case, the word is properly used because the context yeah. of social distancing is this one that I'm showing you right now. Yeah. Social distancing is one when someone is ousted. So I did feel back then, I think it was 95, 94, in Louisiana, the heart of Ku Klux Klan country. Later on, I figured out and I talked and because I was distressed and sad. And I told the family when we went, went back home that night, you know what? I felt to the point that I was about to cry. I felt offended and not welcomed. And I felt that I had to be nice to them. And I, was, I felt like hell. And I really, I, I, I've never been so unwelcome to a family gathering that I didn't know what, what was going on. So they told me, well, the, the guy that you saw there on the corner, well, he is the whatever grand, um, they have these hierarchies. He is the grand blah, blah, blah of whatever chapter of the clan. Oh, wonderful. I'll never come back here again. Well, and so it didn't occur to your family to give you a heads up? Well, the thing is that they were not expecting the gathering to be so large. <laughs> and my ex-wife had a really close relationship with the daughter of the lady of the house. Uh, and I guess something was assumed. Um, and my ex-wife's friend was not like them. They grew up together and they had gone to Europe when they were children. And they knew that there was an, another world outside of Louisiana. <laughs> With all kinds of different people. Yeah. 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 Wow. So, yeah, I, I fell into this situation Christmas. I mean, I was stuck, and they were stuck, and it was horrific. Oof. So what did you take out of that? Um, that racism does exist. It is real. And, um, and I was hurt. I was really sad. Um, I was grateful for the family that I was with. I prayed for these people. Um, and I did, I, I did pray for them, for us, for this horrific thing that I had no idea it was real, did exist, that I was glad that I was exposed to it, yeah, and that I knew and that I was happy that at least the family that I married to were not like them, and they, they knew how to navigate those two worlds. See, my, my, the mother of my ex-wife married, she was half, she was Salvadoran, but but half Italian, and she was an orphan. Uh, she was sent when she was young to live, to go to a college here in the United States, and it was in Louisiana, and she stayed here, and she married an American man. And um, they were exposed to Central America, and, right. um, they, and they Obviously, knew. they had different view of exactly. you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm hearing very raw emotion there. What, what is that? That I didn't, I felt less than, mm. and I'm and I was wondering why I shouldn't be feeling like this. No one's going to tell me how to feel. Don't tell me how to feel. I want to love you. I want to say hello to you and shake your hand and know about you because I've never met you. I live in Los Angeles. To me, and this is my thought, my in, internal process. I want to learn about you because truthfully, you're a different culture than the other American people that I know. But for some reason, my family are your friends, so I want to know you. Plus. 
the um, my wife's uh, friend, she was a breeder for a really nice Chinese type of dog. Uh, I, uh, I forget. I love dogs. And I was really wondering, you know, Sharpe, uh, um, the Sharpe uh-huh. dog, the folds and the skin and the whole thing. And I read about dogs and because I'm a fanatic about dogs and I uh-huh. want to be a vet. I wanted to learn about her. You know, how do you keep those folds not from getting fungus? You know, what do you do? It's so difficult. <laughs> So yes, that's what was that, your on your on your mind. Yeah, I'm there. I'm going to see the kennels, and you know how is this woman doing it? And she sells them, you know, to all the world because she had she has a really good, you know, uh-huh. pedigree yeah. there. Uh huh. Well, these guys are looking at you, and they're like, "What? Are, what the hell are you doing here?" Yeah, yeah. And little by little, I'm I'm thinking, damn, uh, I want to get out of here. All right. And then later on, man, I'm, I'm glad I'm. Wow. Yeah, I'm not there because if I stay overnight. Uh, I don't know where I would have been staying overnight or whatever, you know, it would have been horrific. Hmm. It was it was it was not nice at all. It was it was it's, it's a different vibe. It's, it's it's a silent silent hate. That's what I felt. So you're you mentioned that your wife's mom, your ex-wife's mom was half Salvadorian, is was that right? Yes. Mm-hmm. So did you uh, did did you ask her how she felt? Was there any weird vibe towards her? Excellent question. She did everything possible since she married uh, a boy, a southern boy, to blend and to uh, be of the culture as soon as possible. And she was successful. And she faced a lot of lot of uh, prejudice because of her accent. She had very, very, very thick accent, Hispanic. Plus, the southern accent in English is it's very um, pronounced and influenced in that area by French. Um, so yeah, she faced a lot of, um, uh, racism. The only thing that helped her is that she was very white of skin uh. because her father, absent, was Italian. Mm-hmm. Ay, intense stuff. Um, let's go back to, we talked about a little bit about the identity. Um, what were other things that were tricky to navigate? I really liked the plays in theater. Um, this play, The Donde, was the West Coast premiere of a, a, a play that showed different stories of immigrants crossing the border and telling, uh, it's, it's a play to tell people, you know, why do these people come to this country and what's the story behind it? Um, <clears throat> that was marvelous. And then I had another, I got into another play that we um, performed it on and off, English, Spanish, English, Spanish, a play wrote, written I'm sorry, adapted from a book written by Juan Rulfo. Juan Rulfo is probably one of the main Latin American writers um, with this magical realism style. Oh, I love that. And even Mr. Gabriel Garcia Marquez... I was just going to say, yes. ...credits him, Rulfo, with the influence of magic realism into him, into Garcia oh, Marquez's writing. Some, I gotta see, read some uh, of uh, Rulfo. Rulfo, yeah, marvelous. So again, and also in this country, I met his son, Gabriel Garcia Marquez's son, when mm-hmm. he was a student at AFI. Oh, wow. And, I, and I'm <laughs> still in contact with him. And by the way, they're doing the, they're going to they're do the movie Cien Años de Soledad. Where? It, I don't know where, but they're working on it, and it's going to be like making the movie of the Bible. It's going to be an uh, unsurmountable task. I don't know how the hell is. they're going to do it, but they're going to try it, and they're trying it. 
Wow. That's uh, something to look forward to. It's going to be amazing. Yes. Yeah. Um, his son is going to direct? I don't think so. Uh, they're going to do episodes from what I've heard. Mm-hmm. Uh, episode, uh, somehow in pieces. Um, okay. He is a very sharp-minded... Of course, he could. But knowing him and from what I heard, I think he's going to stay on the producing on the... Literally, okay. literature type of side of things. Okay, adapting. Um, so through Juan Rulfo, that I was able to stay in contact with my language, and um, it was amazing. Wednesday, Friday, whatever, was English. The other days were Spanish. Um, and that was magnificent. Um, but so, but the, uh-huh, mm-hmm. and Go ahead. No, I was going to ask, we were, tr- we were trying to get to like some of the difficult things language-wise, I guess. Yeah, so this one was one of those easy ones because mm-hmm. I could perform in both languages. Mm. Um, and oh, language... so you performed the play in different languages? Yeah. Oh, I didn't get that. Wow. Yeah. So you had to learn it twice. I had to learn it twice. And how was it different? Oh, my God. This is such a cool experience to have um, because I just know being bilingual that the way I think in Russian and the way I think in English is very different. There you go. You, That's and the, key. the way I feel in Russian and in English is different. That's the key, Sasha, precisely. Knowing your character and knowing the story, of course, that's that's the that's the train that you board onto. <clears throat> and the train is going to go one way and you know it's going to end go point A to point B. But the ride itself is going to differ. So that ride that you're talking about, absolutely, particularly in this type of literature, which was first a book, novel, now into a play, it did help me, language-wise, to grab on to some concepts as an actor on stage when in um, acting and performing in English. Because in Spanish, some um, names of things, like insects, insects crawling over a dead body, in this very arid room that's all dryness. Everybody's dead, actually. Uh, but these insects called turicatas, which is similar to bedbugs. But the way it is said in the play, in that moment, it just creeps you. It's creepy as hell because it's more than a cockroach. Yeah, and just a cockroach. That, like, a cockroach is already, ugh, but it is not a cockroach. It's a turicata. It's different. It feels different. As an actor, it's just, oh, man, it's so flavorful. Yes. It's awesome because I can scare and creep the audience with that in Spanish. Right. <laughs> and so in English, you had to say cockroach? I don't remember what we said in, in <laughs> English. <laughs> But it just didn't have the, uh, the impact. Yeah. Mm. But it was awesome. It was great. It was great. Both audiences liked it, and it was an introduction to magic realism. Yeah. To them. It was at Bilingual Foundation for the Arts, and we performed at an old ex-prison in uh, East Los Angeles, yeah. That's an interesting location. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, and so what were the exciting things about the, these early years? To find out that I could um, act in Spanish, that I, that I found ways to do my craft in Spanish, particularly in voiceover. But, and also the um, how can I say there were there there were some challenges in English for me particularly in Shakespeare with teachers that were teaching Shakespeare Shakespeare text and how to act Shakespeare 
It was difficult. I mean, it's really challenging. I don't even know. I, it's it's funny. I was thinking about it the other day. It's like the the level of my English, of course, in the 10 years that I've been living here, it has improved. But I still am not at the level where I could comfortably read Shakespeare. And that's my goal in language is to, to get yeah. to that level of <laughs> comfort. Um, yeah, yeah, so that was a challenge. Absolutely. For everyone, and but particularly for me. Um, but I think it's a challenge for native English speakers too, for, you know, because it's not English. I mean, it's English English. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> it's English, ancient English. Yeah. It's like a whole yeah. different language. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, anyway, so. Okay, so the good things. You the good saying. things, yes. Yeah, that I could uh, act in my own language. Um, Was that how you saw your career? No. I wanted to be in movies. Right. And, so and then how I, did you reconcile that? Exactly. I had to. First, realizing that I was not going to make a living in theater, despite my political and whatever message that I wanted to tell the world, because I thought that if I had a, a captive audience, why waste it in laughs? That's the way I used to think. It had to be something serious. It had to be, you know, something of meaning. People wake up, you know. I was going to uh-huh. transform them right there. Right with my there. acting, with my <laughs> acting and, and my in this wonderful play that I'm in. Yes. <clears throat> so um, I had to start working and um, but always, always trying to work with languages. And and I was wanted to help the little guy. And I discovered Amnesty International and I discovered um, uh, people here in Los Angeles that were going to that were he- helping immigrants. And I was lending my services as an interpreter for political asylum seekers to prepare them for their interviews. Hmm. And so then in terms of your career, how did you reconcile being? Yeah. So working as an interpreter gave me that opportunity to feel close to the people that I wanted to help. And I wanted to tell the world their stories, which are the Central and Mexican uh, people come to this country by helping them directly via interpreting with their attorneys, with their doctors, etc. Um, and thanks to working in voiceover, which happened one day going to an audition for a commercial when I was told, we're not going to use you on camera, but we might use you for the voice of this spot. I was told to contact the producers and... Um, <clears throat> Tell them, perhaps they could use me. They said no, but um, that opened up a whole world for me. And I started searching and researching and putting together a demo tape and I found an agent and they signed me up right away. And I discovered that that was a way of acting. (laughs) Um, And also I kept on active via letter writing with Amnesty International to liberate um, people that were disappeared or incarcerated for the way they were thinking, for their political views, etc. I I kept in contact with that social responsibility of people to be equal in human rights. Um, And uh, I had a role in a movie with Raul Julia, a movie about Monsignor Romero. It was a feature film. It had a uh, release in Hollywood, and I played one of these insurgents hmm. uh, in El Salvador's war that lasted 10 years. Wow. In fact, I went to El Salvador 
And I went to one of these liberated territories and I presented myself to the, and I don't want to call them like this. From here on, this is the only time that I'm going to call them guerrilleros or guerrillas. But I interviewed with the FMLN, Frente Farabundo Martí para la Liberación Nacional. The FMLN, this is the leftist um, insurgent group fighting as the only representatives for their people. So <clears throat> through my childhood that I was learning about these things in Nicaragua and always wars in Central America and then growing up and learning about Che Guevara, Cuba and Latin American problems in relation to the United States, um, I had to, no matter what or for reasons oof, X, Y or Z, I would end up in these projects that had to do with human rights, etc. So Romero, which is the name of the movie, is the story of the assassination of Monsignor Romero, who was assassinated while giving mass in front of the people. So these death squads were trained by American military, American advisors. While I was in El Salvador, I visited and I stayed very close to the place of a massacre called El Mozote. El Mozote is a massacre that <clears throat> is not very well known in relation to these interventions, these military helpers to deal with the communists in Latin America in recent years. Morazan is a department in El Salvador, and the character that I played in Romero, the movie with Raul Julia, directed by uh, John Doigan, an Australian, is the story of Monsignor Romero and how he's assassinated, calling people to be brothers. He's actually calling the military to stop assassinating their brothers and sisters. Don't you see that they're your brothers and sisters? Don't you see that we are from the same mother, from the same father, etc., etc.? As he raises his hands, boom, straight to the heart. A sharpshooter from the other side of the church kills him in true life and in the movie as well. So although I was not landing the roles that I wanted to, and I was going out a lot on auditions, commercials, et cetera, et cetera, from time to time, I would have these little, um, you know, sparks of what I thought an actor would be, should be. So I go and interview with the insurgents in El Salvador, and I tell them that I want to know more about their story. And um, I want to sign up. I want to pick up arms with you. And that's what the guy said. Oh, really? Yeah. And who are you? Well, I'm Hector Herrera, and I'm Mexican, and I feel that you're my brother, and I live in the USA, and I can help you. And wow. I know your people, and I have skills that can help you. I can listen to radio. I can help you um, decipher communications. I can blah, blah, blah. And I'm not afraid of fighting, actually, huh. because I do have a first-degree black belt. So that, that's, that's how I'm thinking. I'm, I'm invincible, okay? <laughs> I want to sign up for this civil war, this war that it does not even belong to me. Hold on. Did you mean it when you were saying all that? Absolutely. Oh, my God. I thought you were doing like an acting thing, a method thing. No. I did go to do research for a play that Amnesty International backed me up with. Because that year, it was going to be the year of human rights in El Salvador. Oh, my God. It, and then in terms of, instead of doing your research, you decided to actually sign up and to fight. Both. Both. Yes. <laughs> I was going to do both. I was Can't going to do, do both. both. <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> oh, wow. But it's so interesting. I mean, I'm talking to you and uh, not that I do have much experience with uh, um, revolutions and revolutionaries, but... 
You don't strike me as a man of force. I take that as a compliment. Yes. Yes, it's to it totally is because I think um, I don't know. Uh, I don't. I hate when people say it's a, a women's thing, men's thing. But uh, I just think there's nothing worse than war um, in the world, really. And so, so mm -hmm. how how did it happen in in you to what what happened there? I really welcome this session that we're having, okay? Because currently, I just viewed, I binge watched Hunters. And the best revenge is revenge. Al saying that, okay? Mm -hmm. Back then, I would not see myself killing a fly because it's all human rights. But when I went to that territory, when I see poverty in that way, when I actually heard grenades and gunshots where I was, because we went, we went to uh, San Salvador at a time in which people were being disappeared if you participate in a peaceful demonstration. Amnesty International kind of had my backing, but they should not be backing anyone. Right. I just told them where I was going. And, um, and they said, okay, well, thank you for letting us know. Um, but I was there. And just being there and with, with my ex-wife, which I did not tell her that I was going to say this, but that transformation happened in, during that trip. Plus, being followed in San Salvador once we landed, I don't know how the hell they knew, but they knew, um, it's, it all started adding up. Mm. And my ex-wife's family asking me questions. When did you land? Where did you land? What taxi did you take? Where are you living? Who's staying with you? What markets did you go to? Blah, blah, blah. Has this person showing up? Have you seen this or that type of people? Yes, 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 and yes. Well, they're following you. Okay? Okay. Mm. My dad, at that time he was alive, he was so worried. He knew everything. I didn't care. I wanted to find out why Central America, since I was a kid, on the news. <laughs> and, and, and then we go to this place called El Mosote, and I learned how they line up, lined up people, separated them, put them into rooms, school rooms, lined them up, kids, women, men, and cut them in half with machine guns. It was all processed very methodically, very military, stickly, methodically, orderly. With these, orderly, with these advisors from South Africa. Guess where they learned their craft? From the generals that went to the School of the Americas in the United States. It's military people, learned people, high millionaires of El Salvador, there were 10 or 12 families back then that owned the country, went to those military schools, learned the military way, learned how to torture people, learned how to squash insurgencies, learned how to deal with people that raise their voice too loud. And that's what happened that day. They rounded up people, kids, grandmas, everyone, students, teachers in particular, and just cut them in half. I learned about the. I did not want to go there. I did not want to go there. They were inviting us. Would you like to go? No, I don't want to go to that site. No. Mm -hmm. The vibe was horrific, Sasha. Horrific. I, I what they told me if you if you want to talk, there, there's a lady that survived it. Yes, I want to talk to her. She survived it by walking in through. At that time, there was a bunch of cattle cows, and I remember them telling me. Skinny cows, of course, skinny. Mm -hmm. 
And she broke the line. She stepped out of the line and she just in between the cows got out, escaped. So she told me and she said, all I could hear was the gunshots, the people, the horror. So, of course, I want to join. That's my answer. Um, There was a crew of filmmakers from Belgium. They went. I talked to them the following day and they tell me, yeah, it's it's good that you didn't go. Even I can tell it's good that you didn't go. Yeah. Um, And so how did you feel being, I'm guessing at that point, an American citizen? You know, I that time I was traveling with I had bought both passports, Mexican passport and U.S. passport. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, just the immigration wise. But no, I see. I did not feel being if anything, I felt Mexican more than anything. Huh. But I felt I felt my brothers and sisters more than anything over everything else, because by then I had known known them living in Los Angeles. These are the people that I was interpreting for when they would have a workers' comp claim because they got hurt at work. These are the people that I would see them every day at the busboys and everything that I would not have seen them in Mexico. So all of this world from Central America opened up when I came to the USA. I don't know politically, like, was the involvement of the United States uh, official? Oh, it was unofficial. It was unofficial. It was, it was unofficial, but Amnesty International has it documented very well. And recently, and there've there've been uh, world uh, trials against these these monsters. One or two have been indicted. Yes, the the world uh, what's it called tribunal for um, human rights uh, abuses, and they've been tried and they've been indicted. Yeah. Wow. And so and so you said that you were gonna you were gonna join them, and what happened then? He said no. Thank you. He said, you know, I, I, I feel you, brother. And you know what? I like your Ray-Bans. They would look good on my commander. And I like your Levi's. And I said, well, you know what? The Ray-Bans can, but I'm not going to wear my, my underwear right now. I'll come back with other pants, but uh, sure, take my Ray-Bans. Uh, we, he said, I sincerely, I feel you sincerely, but this is our fight. This is our fight. And... Um, you would serve us more if you take this play that you're that you're going to produce and tell them, tell them over there in Los Angeles how, how it is over here. Okay, we can't we can't take you. This hmm. is our fight. Hmm. Why do you think he said that? I think number one, security reasons, <clears throat> um, and meaning meaning I could be a spy, right? Um, and I guess he didn't believe me. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I could be anyone, right? And and I and but he did say. The only one that we have admitted is we have this gringo here or, or we've had him because he knew how to, how to uh, work the anti-aircraft uh, machines, mm. I guess, given by the Soviets or somehow they had anti, you know, m- um, whatever. Had to have been. Yeah, uh, aircraft something. <laughs> At least one of them where they welcomed this guy who was defecting or was a gringo that was fighting with them, and he did disclose us, that to me. Do you know where he, where the gringo was from? No, he just said, we have a gringo, we have a guero, we have a blonde guy here. Yeah, <laughs> one. one. Token white guy. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
Wow, what a story. And so you brought all of this experience back to Los Angeles. And what did you did the play happen? Did you put it up? <clears throat> okay, the play did happen. Uh, and I made a mistake, which was to ask a friend of mine to direct it. I needed a director and we clashed. Mm. And I could not go for, forward with the play as he see, as he saw it. Mm. I tried to get help from the writers, the people that I bought the rights from, the playwrights. They could do nothing. At that time, I had an um, agent that represented me, and all we could do was send a cease and, desi cease and desist letter because I did not want the play to show as it would be performed as this quote-unquote friend had directed it to be. I left the play in rehearsals. I had a bit, big argument with this guy that closely came to fist fight, wow. and I just stopped. I just said, no, I'm not into this if you're going to present it like this because I've been there. I know how it is, and this is not how it should be portrayed, period. Mm. And I walked away, and whatever, I don't know. The people from Amnesty International were a little bit confused, and uh, the play did open because it was part of their campaign mm -hmm. for that year for Amnesty International. I, my heart was broken, mm -hmm. but I was not going to let a piece of shit, basically, I'm sorry, something mm -hmm. that's not true, something that is not true to the people that spoke to me, the people that... <sighs> Trusted you. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. I was not going to betray them, and I'm sorry, Amnesty International and everyone. <clears throat> wow. But I was not going to be part of uh, another lie. And it was presented, and it had a horrific uh, review, and I'm sorry. Um, mm. But that was it for that play. Mm. Yeah, It's really tough making art with friends, huh? It is. I'm sure you know. And it's so um, enticing. Absolutely. You think they, they have your back in every possible way. And you and think you that you work. will agree or find understanding no matter what, and you'll figure it out, but then the, the price that you end up paying, um, yeah, they say don't do business with friends, right? Correct. So then you worked in that kind of activist theater, and then how, how did you move forward with your career? Um, thanks to languages again, um, me finding out that the advertising industry was liking my voice. For commercials. I can hear why. Thank you. And at that time, Honda particularly brilliantly started not, how can I say, they stopped translating the English copy for their car commercials and actually writing directly, specifically targeting the Latino market. Yeah. Um, and I could speak clearly to them. Yeah. So that helped me a lot, uh, commercials in, in voiceover. And uh, from time to time, I would take a, an acting workshop just to keep keep alive in, in that sense. It was around the time when I met uh, René Pereira, the Lee Strasberg uh, assistant. Um, and I also got involved with Screen Actors Guild and AFTRA, and I got involved with my union. And I then became a labor union activist. Oh, that is interesting, but kind of makes sense with uh, the kind of uh, uh, ideas that you had. Yes. So I signed up for the um, uh, Spanish language media committee and also for the negotiations, uh, commercials and negotiations committees. Um, and I went for it. Yeah. And um, Wow. So you negotiated? 
I was part of the committees, yes, mm -hmm. yes. So the Spanish market kept growing, expanding. My argument was that we should get paid just as much as general market actors. For example, why if an actor that advertises um, Starbucks gets paid more than Hector, who advertises Starbucks in Spanish? Why? Makes no sense. Why X commercial, X market pays less? Of course, it makes no sense. The argument from, um, what's the street, uh, the advertising street in uh, New York? Madison Avenue. So we met with those guys in, one, in 2009, 2010 negotiations, okay? Uh -huh. The argument is Spanish networks are not a, they're not, actually, they're not a network like ABC, CBS, etc. And I would say, well, we're not a network in, in a traditional way, but guess what? Let's just count the numbers by markets. How many people view you in Chicago, Miami, New York, blah, 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 Los Angeles, San Francisco, versus how many people views at particular time of the day or whatever, prime time, particular channel, in what, con in, in what county? Guess what? The Latinos were viewing more TV, not necessarily within what they consider a network, but all of these markets, all of these towns, all of these cities, their numbers were higher than a network. Therefore, advertisers, Heineken, I remember that particular research that I did, were going up in numbers. And all of these, the numbers were there just by sales. And by the way, I could see the way they were writing copy, copy that I was reading in voiceover for auditions and in jobs, and how they were really hanging on to this market. Yeah. Um, and I just wanted more money. And whether I'm a network or not, guess what? Just, just monetize it by units and pay me like that. And so they did they? In a way they did, but still there's this, there's, they pay us in cycles of 13 weeks and then they, they rebuy it. They pay you, I don't know the, the formula today, but it's not as much as an English market. Still not. Equal. Still, no, no. There's technicalities and now we have uh, new media, we have streaming, there's ways that they say that it, they cannot monetize it, they cannot calculate. But just to clarify for for me and for our audience, because you know I'm not uh, actually I am SAG eligible as of recently. Uh, I did a little voice gig too, um, but uh, I've never been paid <laughs> yet through you will through union. Thank you. Hopefully. Um, so how does it work? Like they calculate the pay depending on how many uh, views the ad gets? Correct. Yeah, there's views. There's ways of quantifying the view viewership uh, via cookies, via th there's ways. Right. Yeah. Like they get their stats for sure. Exactly. Because they know how much they're selling or not. Oh, yeah. So for them, that is proprietary information. Oh, so they don't want to share the the real numbers. Correct. Hmm. Madison Avenue is a big no-no. No, nope, we can't. We don't. There's no way. Yeah, right. Huh. But little by little. Yeah, but little by little, it's, 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 the playing field is, is being equalized because just by force, period. Well, you would think, yeah, that union, that's what union is for, right? Yeah, yeah. They, they've been helpful. Yes. Yeah, they have. That's uh, That's good to know. Thanks, SAG. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. What was the most interesting, what was the most exciting thing you got to do uh, so far professionally in the States? I would say that my last three or four um, jobs as a dialect coach. 
So this is where all my interpreting, all my bilingual, bicultural, knowing the people comes into play. Training as an actor, knowing how to, how to talk to actors, knowing how to read a script, knowing how to put a voice to a character comes into play. And what is that? What are those uh, and, uh, shows or last, Yeah, th this is a show that was suspended thanks to, not thanks to, but due to COVID-19. Uh, called Coyote, um, Paramount Pictures and Sony uh, partnered with the story of a border patrol agent who now sees the world from the immigrants' uh, point of view. People who he once used to try to keep away, now he's going to help them cross. Uh -huh. But anyway, in this story, we have actors uh, that need to have both be, because some of them don't speak English, so I help them to be in their scenes um, uh, clear enough and with, uh, how can I say, to be understand, to be understood, and for their language to be, to function, for the scene to work. So I, I did, did that both for English and, and Spanish. Um, Michael Chiklis and, and other big actors are in it uh, from um, Latin American countries. Um, so the way that I work with them is not necessarily directly with language. You have to sound like this because the verb, the conjunction, the adjective, no, no, no. So I talk to them in their character, with their character perspective. I also worked in another show called Mayans. I love that is, show. Oh, there you go. Well, <laughs> I was I was dialect coach for Danny Pino. Danny Pino, who is um, Galindo, the head of the cartel. He is from Venezuela. Uh, Carla Barata, another Venezuelan, who is Adelita. And and others, uh, other actors from Los Angeles. So we needed to find some homogenized, some, some sound that would fit to their characters. So in my work, I deal mostly as if I am them and as an actor trying to find the voice of the character uh, rather than saying, this is wrong. No, you should sound like this, you should sound like that. I work very differently than other dialect coaches. So I gave them examples. I gave them homework to look at, for example, with Danny Pino, I asked them to look at uh, heads of states giving uh, speeches uh, even CEOs of, of companies, because his character is a very well-educated uh, Ivy League um, in engineer in something. Yeah, cartel Nonetheless, leader. Nonetheless, excuse me, let me take off this raincoat that is full of blood because I just cut off a man's arm because he stole my cocaine or heroin um, cargo. Yeah. Because I, I need to go to have dinner with my beautiful wife. Yeah, that was an intense scene. Oh, man, I was there that day. It was beautiful. So um, very intense, horrifically portrayed and masterfully done by Danny Pino. I had the pleasure to work with him, Tony Plana, Eddie James Olmos, all of these people that had been pillars of acting for actors and people look up to these guys, actors. For sure. You know. And it's so interesting that, you know, I, I was just thinking about how you know, people see them and they see their performance and they see their work. And, you know, I've I'm in the in the industry and, you know, I know how many people are behind each of them and behind each performance. But people very rarely think about and they're like, OK, well, the, this guy, 
maybe has like an acting coach or something, but like the dialect coach is such a huge role, but rarely the, you know, the audience would think about it. It's a little hidden secret. The actors and the dialect coach, at least in my work, I love my actors. They love me too. And because I didn't tell them how to sound. They found it themselves. Their voice was found from their own research because I trust them. That's the actor's work. And I'm not there to protect or defend the Spanish language. No. Languages evolve with time and with fashion and with many things. And it's all about context. And location. Know? Location, absolutely. So I tune in into those things and I just work the scenes out with them. And suddenly they tell me I got it. Or, for example, Caribbean accents that tend to be nasally, a little bit higher, suddenly become grounded and their voice is loud like a leader and the pace is different and determined and they have a passion. And like Danny, he's just this, he's a handsome guy, very well dressed, but he's a mean motherfucker that if you turn around, he's going to put a you know knife through your back. Yeah. So, he, But he speaks very politely. Yeah. And that's uh, the power, you know? Yeah, no, he, he's a, it's a great character. He, I'm sure he had a lot of fun creating it, and you had a lot of fun creating it with him. It was, it was great, yeah. There's something uh, I like to ask people about is being from a different culture, um, you did find love here. Uh, how was that different from, from back there? Um, Oh, it was wonderful. Was, was it? It was different. It was wonderful because in the process of acclimating to this new culture, I had to tap into my training in martial arts, and I also discovered yoga, and discovered um, psychotherapy, and I needed all of that to be flexible, and to um, accept love from being. It's it's strange. But when you're in a different country, different environment, not your culture, I came to the realization that love is love, no matter what. Transculturally, trans borders, everything. In fact, currently, my ex-wife partnered up with a woman. Mm. My daughter graduated from college in 2017, and there she found the love of her life, a woman. Mm. I asked you about love life, but I guess I meant more, uh, you know, relationships. How do you find the American structure? Um, first, in Huntington Beach, I met this girl that sounded with a Spanish accent. Her, her mom was from Colombia and her dad was American. And we fell in love and we got married. And she actually introduced me to interpreting. Yeah. Um, but it was through that, through people that I was active in either school or work or some type of activity of course like we said before there was no internet mm -hmm. and it was quite organic uh in that sense oh my god the beautiful days yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> i still don't i still can't like i don't understand it's so difficult um, because how do you expect that just by you know matching because no. a, a algorithm says you do that suddenly you're supposed to be holding hands the first time you see that person. Well, I guess you're not supposed to. I don't know. I don't know how all that works. 
Anyway, um, but just a little bit quickly, because because you, you were married to uh, a woman, an American woman, right? At, at some point, yes. Did you, and and you had kids, and did you feel that there was some kind of different expectation or different perception of how things are supposed to be? I'm I'm not I'm not assuming there was. I'm just asking if you felt there was something that. For you as a Mexican man, um, you 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 saw family differently, for example, than your wife or or something like that. Yeah, um, I one of the reasons that I also left my home was that family life was not good for me. My parents' situation hurt me a lot, and they divorced actually pretty much soon after I moved to this country. Um, so finding partner, a partner, I've been married twice, particularly the mother of Diego and Julia. I'm just going to say it straight out. I learned about unconditional love, which cross cultural, cross everything. Um, I welcomed very much the, me having space to not have to fit the norm of the macho Mexican guy. I hated that growing up, that because I was the older boy, I had to defend, protect, and et cetera, et cetera, my sisters. Not that I did not want to, but why, why, is it, why does it need to be codified? Why do I need to behave in that way, that men have to be this way, women the other way? I really welcomed that women here could do pretty much if they wanted, and I say pretty much because still a struggle, Right. But it was very different than in Mexico. Absolutely. And I really welcome that. And um, it was just easier just to meet women in this other way um, that had a different way of thinking, that we were even more, I think, equal. I liked that a lot. And I liked working with a lot of women in the professional field as well. I love that. Yeah. That's cool. I find kind of it's it's tricky because there is a certain a certain um, shorthand with people that come from your background and your language. But then there's like the excitement of someone who's different. Yes. And yes, there is that shorthand. Absolutely. Um, which existed somewhat with my first marriage. But at that time, she wanted kids and I did not want kids. I, I was I was on a mission. And that's what broke us apart. Um, so I was I was liberated from some some expectations here, family wise and stuff like that. Um, yeah, um, and and when I interpret for women uh, women in cases legal cases, uh, I am so happy that I can be and think Hector, just be the best interpreter that you've ever been in your life, because of course, um, not always. But most of the time, I am not under oath. Nonetheless, I want to be the best interpreter so that this woman who has been abused at work, be it sexually or in any way demeaned, I want to speak for her. And I'm glad that my attorneys hire me frequently for those types of cases. I will never lie. In fact, I always tell them, women in particular, I need to know every word, please. Bad word, doesn't matter. Insult, doesn't matter. Part of body garments, everything. And women are very shy, understandably. Understand, it's so difficult in every sense, so many levels of difficulty for them. But I plea with them, please, please tell me, how did he say it? What did he say? Oh, no, but it's a bad word. It's, it's a, please, ma'am, 
How did he say it? It's very important. So the way he says it, guess what? I am not going to lie, but because of my voice training, the way I pronounce that word, the way I pause or not in the way she speaks, it's going to give them the whole message. Yeah, and also your ability to convince them to be fully, fully straightforward about what happened. I'm sure um, not every interpreter takes the care to get that out. And that's your dialect coaching and, and training and acting training, uh, I'm sure, is so helpful where you can, can get it out of them. Absolutely. And California has rules uh, in labor law, particular to, uh, especially for, for here, for California, that they protect uh, workers in certain ways that other states don't. And I'm very lucky that I work with very, very intelligent, humane, awesome attorneys, that they let me, um, how can I say, express myself to their clients for them to feel more comfortable to create this rapport between them and I so they could give their attorney, who's also my client, their best answers with no fear, with clarity, and uh, feeling supported, that we are listening to them. And um, something that I learned from my dad to always be ethical, always don't be corrupt. For me, it would be so easy, so easy, because everybody believes the interpreter when we are in that matter, to say something that it wasn't. So tempting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sometimes just out of convenience. Yeah. Could be, yeah, but I can, I can hear that, yeah. I must be fair for both sides, and guess what? Not guess what, but what I want to say is that truth, Sasha, eventually prevails, believe me. If not right now, and this is what I tell my clients, if you don't get your justice right now, believe me, it's going to come to you sooner or later. Be truthful. Talk to me with the truth so that I can talk to the, with the truth to your attorney. Don't be afraid. Don't be ashamed. Shame, by the way, shame. Talking about cultures, something that has no borders. Yeah. Back to you. In the very beginning, we talked. We we kind of touched on the transformation. I know it's a big concept, but maybe you could tell me about one or two things that you realized about yourself. Um, most important things, if you are willing to share, um, in the process of. I guess, transformation through that, through these years. This transformation has brought me, even though geographically I am farther than ever from my family, it has brought me closer to my, me and who I was supposed to be. Let me explain. <laughs> we all have a higher self, I think, or at least I think I have a higher self. I don't believe in, <clears throat> in religion. I do believe in God. And this relationship with the divine and these talents that we all have are God-given. Through martial arts, Master Hirakawa, and the approach that Buddhism, Taoism, and the Eastern world uh, universe views life, that was very helpful for me to adapt to a new environment in every way, every, every way, life on a daily basis. Um, so all of this in isolation of the people that I grew up with and the surroundings that I grew up with here. So in a way, I've distilled who I was supposed to be, who I'm supposed to be in a way. What I'm doing is what I love, and I love what I'm doing. Um, and that has helped the transformation for me to um, you know, be here in this country with its faults and its many things that I would like to change. 
um, I feel very comfortable here. Yeah, so much more than in Mexico City. I, I will say that. I do miss my culture. I'm grateful for my culture. I'm not nationalistic at all. I'm not going to die for my flag. Uh, those kinds of things. Yeah, I love culture. I love language. I love people. And we should all love each other. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great wrap so that nobody has to die for any flag. Um, that's, that's what uh, my hope is. Yeah. Are there any lingering thoughts? I want to thank you, Sasha, for this project that you're creating. Oh, thank you. Because you're giving me a voice. Thank you. That's that's the whole purpose of it. Thank you for sharing. Your title that's is amazing. It. We the Aliens. Thank you. Yay. Awesome. Thank you, Hector. Thank you for your patience. <laughs> oh, there's no patience involved. <laughs> Only curiosity. <laughs> That's it for today. I hope it was fun. Let me know what you think and please share. Share, share, share. Be generous. <laughs> and remember, we're here to stay. We'll find our way. Thank you for listening. Love you all. Peace. Country, my damn country, and it don't mean a thing.